Hi, my name is Scott and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website www.RestoredTemecula.Church and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoyed the message. I love you guys. Okay, so my name is Herrick. Good morning. I'm an eldership here this church, and I want to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. I'm going to go ahead and start my time. This morning, I am excited to share kind of a word that's been stirring up in me, I think, all week. If you're new, we've been in a series for years called The King and His Kingdom, uh, going through the Gospel of Matthew. It's actually a good thing. We can't spend enough time unpacking Jesus. Uh, So that's been wonderful. Today, I'm going to actually pause on that series. We'll pick back up on it next week. But uh, today, I feel like I have a message that I think is for us. I I don't think it's just for for you. I think it's for me. I think it's for us. I think that God's word is always relevant. It's always impactful. And we're going to read today out of the book of Jeremiah, which I don't know if when the last time was that we were in Jeremiah, but this book was written thousands of years ago, and you guys are going to see like how relevant it is for today. It's incredible. God's alive, and he's doing stuff in us and through us, and I think he wants to do something this morning. So if you'll join me, pray for me, pray for this time, pray to receive what God has, I would appreciate that. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to open your word. Thank you that your word is effective, your word goes out and it's bearing fruit, and I pray for fruit this morning, not because of me or anything that I'm, it's not, it's not about me, it's about you, it's about your son, it's about this world that sits in darkness and a great light is dawning upon it, and we want him, we want him, would you give us Jesus this morning, Father? Would you help us to see anything and everything that gets in the way of us grabbing hold of him, enjoying him, obeying him, operating like him as his disciples in this world, bringing hope into a hopeless world and and beginning like a little taste of what the age to come will be like so that men and women would come to him and young people and children would come to him Would you do a fresh work in us this morning, Father? We thank you and we love you. In your name we pray, amen. The story of the Bible is pretty cool. It starts off with with a marriage and it pretty rapidly, and the marriage is essentially like it's a partnership between God and human beings. And that partnership is intended to be a blessing to the entire world. It's intended to reveal what God is like to the creation. As as, as men and women learn to rely not on themselves, not on their own strength or intuition or wisdom or gifts or power, but on him. And as that happens, God's kingdom breaks in. Now, the story goes off the rails within three chapters (laughs) Which is, which is pretty remarkable. In chapter three of the Bible, uh, if you don't know, the, the kind of Adam and Eve, if you will, our first parents, uh, they, they go off track. And the partnership breaks down between humanity and mankind. And what you see is a few chapters later in Genesis 12, you see God calling one man, Abraham, and saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this project, this partnership, this desire that I have to see the entire world swept up into my story, I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue that story through you, Abraham. And so Abraham has a bunch of kids. He actually can't have kids. I can't get into all of it right now. He has, he has one son, and then he has, those kid has kids, and kids have kids, and so on and so forth. And eventually you get the 12 sons of Jacob. You get 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jacob is this rascal. Uh, I think that's the actual term that they use to describe him. He's got some issues. He's got problems. I can't get into Jacob right now, but he, he has a couple of wives, and one of his wives is Rachel. And Rachel is this fascinating character in the Bible. I've been thinking about Rachel this week. Why have I been thinking about Rachel this week? There's a story. Okay, God wants to, he's calling a people to himself, and he's sending his people somewhere. We know that where they're going, ultimately, is to the promised land. God wants to give this people a land, a place where it's like, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And this place will be like a new, like a garden of Eden where the whole world can see my goodness, right? But the way that, on the way there, Rachel, who is a person that's set apart by God for God, does something remarkable. She's in her father's house. Her father worships idols. He worships other gods. And what does Rachel do as she's leaving her father's house, going to where God has called her to go? She grabs the household idols and sits on them. Kind of weird. But what she wants to do is she wants to take these idols with her where she's going. Why is that a problem? Well, an idol is essentially a God replacement. Okay? An idol is a God replacement. I mentioned that this, God's desire is for a partnership. Sometimes it's, it's described or likened to a marriage. So Rachel's essentially saying, like, I got a little something on the side. A little something, something. And I'm going to sit on it. And I'm going to pretend that it's that time of the month so that when anybody comes to check, nobody's going to want to check that. And that's what happens. Laban, her dad's like, where are my household idols? And Rachel's like, well, look around, pops. Uh, but she's, she's literally sitting on them. She's taking her idols with her to where God is calling her. she got a little something on the side. And then you're like, cool, Herrick, why are you talking to me about side, like having someone on the side and sitting on idols? Well, here's my point. I think in the scriptures what we're going to see, especially in the scriptures that we're going to talk about today, you're going to see that the story develops over time. And the story develops in a a remarkable way. God actually calls Jacob's children, the 12 tribes of Israel, and he saves them out of Egypt where they're in bondage for hundreds of years, and he's taking them somewhere. He's taking them to the promised land. And guess what the people do? Just like Rachel, they want to take their idols with them into the promised land. This is just not going to work. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you guys. I'm going to walk you guys through a remarkable text where Jeremiah says, this is what happens when you try to take your idols with you to the promised land. Grab your Bibles if you have them. Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 13. And idols, I don't want you to think of these little like wooden cutouts or a golden calf. I want you to think of anything that that draws your loves your heart's love, attention, devotion that's not God himself. Anything else that we would look to and trust in. My point in saying that is that idols is something that everybody struggles with. If you don't know that yet, you'll find out today. And so the story that we're going to read, it's not just about Israel. It's about anybody and everybody who abandons God for an idol and what happens. This is a story about humanity. This is a story about us. Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 13. Jeremiah was a fascinating guy. Uh, He was called to basically share a lot of bad news with people that didn't want to hear it. And he did it. So here's, here's the beginning of the bad news, if you will, of Jeremiah. But that's not where it ends, but it's where it begins. Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 13. Thanks, guys. We'll start with 1 to 6. The word of the Lord came to me. So Jeremiah is a prophet. He's speaking God's words, not just to Israel, but also to the nations. But first, we're going to start with Israel, God's people. Go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride, you, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. So what is he talking about here? God rescued his people out of Egypt, and then he took them through the wilderness. He was taking them somewhere. 
okay? God rescued his people out of Egypt and the honeymoon was on. The honeymoon was on. Verse three, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it found themselves guilty. Disaster came on them. This is the Lord's declaration. What the heck does that mean? Whoever messed with God's girl regretted it. God has a fiery passion for what's his. Anybody that messed with Israel lived to regret it. Verse four. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Things are going good, right? Hold on. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they went so far from me, followed worthless idols, and became worthless themselves? This is why Jeremiah had few friends. A little John the Baptist edge. You brood of vipers. And then you wonder why he winds up in jail. Here's the point. There's a point to this. This is a quote. You guys don't have this in the back, but I just thought this was profound. Sit with this. God's bride separated from her husband without the slightest provocation. God's bride separated from her husband without the slightest provocation. Separation without provocation. There's no explanation. There's no excuse. Idolatry is insanity because it takes people who have been rescued, redeemed, purchased at a high cost and it makes them essentially not care for no reason. It's it's insanity. We'll we'll talk more about this. Verse 6. They stopped asking. This is the people. They stopped asking, where's the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt? who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and darkness, a land that no one traveled through and where no one lived. Quote number one. Check this out. Here's what's happening here. The marriage between God and his people is dying of neglect. God's people no longer seek after God. They no longer say, where is the Lord? Okay? They no longer recount and recite the mighty acts of salvation. They forgot the love that saved them. They suffer from self-induced spiritual amnesia. It's Philip Ryken from his commentary on Jeremiah. Are you guys seeing what's happening here? The people forget. They suffer from spiritual amnesia. It's as if to say like the honeymoon is over and everything that came to this point didn't matter. All the things that the Lord did, they didn't matter anymore to the people. And this is God's people's side note. I just got to say this. In, the, in, that, in that world at that time, you have Jewish people, you have Gentile people. The Gentile people are by definition idolaters. They worship the gods of their nations. That's what they do. God's people, though, are like a people who not only do they end up worshiping idols, but they forsake God. So they're like doubly guilty. They're worse off than the Gentiles. They're worse off than the pagans. Verse seven, I brought you, this by the way again, this is why Jeremiah, you ever heard of like that term Jeremiah? It's just like these, these, these expressions of sorrow and grief and heartache. This is what Jeremiah was called to do. To essentially proclaim devastation, grief and heartache to a people who had lost their, who'd forgotten their God. Verse 7, I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty, but after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priests quit asking, where is the Lord? Experts in the law no longer knew me, and the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, which is one of the Canaanite gods, and followed useless idols. So here's the result of idolatry. Here's Here's where the rubber meets the road. The people that are outwardly associated with God are inwardly alienated from him. They wear the badge, but don't believe. 
Their faith is a label, but it doesn't have any love to it. It's empty. So what ends up happening is the people of Israel become like a, like a bride that's like, I want to live in your house. I want to eat your food. I'm going to come to your parties. I'm going to wear the wedding band. I'm not taking it off. I'm in the family pictures after all. That wouldn't be a good look. But at night when you roll over, you might not see me. Therefore, verse 9, I will bring a case against you again. This is the Lord's declaration. I will bring a case against your children's children. God's not asleep to the hypocrisy in his people. He doesn't need help picking it out. He sees it pretty clearly. I believe you, Lord. Never mind that I'm sitting on an idol, pretending it's not there, and bringing it into the Lord's camp. He's not misled by optics. He's not misled by religious activity. He sees right through it to the truth. And sometimes he files charges against his own. That's legal language that he's using. Verse 10, cross over the coasts of Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to to Kedar and consider carefully. See if there has ever been anything like this. Verse 11, has a nation ever exchanged its gods? But they were not gods. Yet my people exchanged their glory for useless idols. In other words, I heard it put this way, the pagans never abandoned their dead gods, but God's people abandoned the living God. Be appalled at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. And this is the last verse. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. All right. I have three observations that I want to share with you from this text. If you're taking notes, here's number one. Idols represent false hopes. Idols represent false hopes. Jeremiah 2.13. Maybe you've heard this, this before, but if you have, let's take a fresh look at it. My people have committed a double evil. Again, they're not just idolaters. They're idolaters that have left God. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Okay. In the wilderness, after God had rescued his people, after he delivered them with his great salvation, what did they end up needing regularly? Do you remember what they would cry out for? Water and food. What would you need if you were in the desert for 40 years wandering? A drink? Some, some yum-yums? Like you, you, you got to have something to get you through this, right? But here's what ends up happening here. And I'm quoting, you guys don't have this in the back. The people have left God who is the spring or the source of living water. God is the only one who can provide for all the people's needs, both spiritual and material. This is what he always did through the period in the wilderness. He provided. Yet in Canaan, his people came to rely more on the fertility god, Baal, or Baal. Quote number two, this is the cash value. This is what this all means. Quote number two, you guys should have that in the back. They have chosen to pursue their own means of obtaining water, life in abundance. But those supplies are unreliable. They're like broken cisterns, which were basically holes in the ground that were used to hold water in times of drought and would have been plastered to prevent seepage, okay? So so get the picture there. It's to hold water. That's what a cistern does. But at that time and in that place, the plaster could easily crack and the water would leak out. So similarly, these suppliers of human needs or idols are unreliable. They're unreliable. Have you ever been in a spot before in your life where you've realized like, oh, the thing I'm looking to is unreliable? The person I'm looking to, the career maybe that I'm looking to, the politicians that I'm looking to, the system that I'm relying in is unreliable? I think we've all been there. We lived through 2020. (laughs) We've lived through the last however long, however many years. There comes a point in time at which everybody realizes 
that their reservoir of water is empty. The reservoir of water goes empty. And what God is saying here, I think, through Jeremiah, is that it never has to be that way because he's a source of living water. He's a source of living water. So imagine, uh, I remember we, do you guys remember when there was a lot of rain here this year? It was a real thing. It happened. And I remember one, one particular day, I was in the car with Mark. Do you remember we were driving over the bridge not far from the office space that we rent? And uh, what's that, that channel? It's Temecula Creek. Marietta Creek, yeah. Did, you guys, did anybody else see when it was completely flowing? When it was just, it was like a, it was incredible. It was rivers and streams in the desert. And I was like, this is a prophetic sign. I don't know of what, but it's something. I think it's, it was, I don't know what it was. Obviously, lots of rain accumulating and runoff accumulating. But I think it was a, it was a sign in, in some ways for God's ability to, to make water, like streams of water flow in a desert. As, as a picture, this is what God can do. Like the people were in a desert, in a desolate, in a desolate land where there was no food, no water, no provision, and God made water come out of a rock. This is the story of Israel, if you don't know it. It's remarkable. God provided for them at every single turn. God made bread rain down from heaven, literally. Manna. The people were like, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? They couldn't even put a name to it. They could only ask a question. Sometimes God... If we understand what he's like, sometimes we only have questions. How are you so good and kind to a people that are so unfaithful to, to you? It would be a good question to ask. My point in saying all this is there is a, there's a fountain of living water, God himself, and there are cracked cisterns, and we have a choice about what we will connect ourselves to, of where we go for water. And idols essentially are a God replacement. Instead of going to God, the source of our living water, we create, we, like, we dig a hole, we, we put a tank underneath it, and we just try to catch whatever we can. Rainwater. These are idols. And it could look like a job. It could look like a career. It could look like a spouse. It could look like children. Not that those things are bad things at all. They are quite simply unable to be a source of life even though we look to these things as a source of life. Has anybody in this room experienced your tank just running dry? Has the well run dry for anybody today? Anybody here just empty? Anybody like going back to a broken cistern, but you just, you're just thirsty? Anybody dying of thirst this morning? Stick with me. Second observation. Number two, if you're taking notes, idols lead you off track. Idols lead you off track. There it is. Jeremiah 2.5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they went so far from me, followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves? Okay. That language right there of them leaving God, they went so far from me and followed, that's an idiom in the, in the original language. An idiom is like, I'm under the weather. If you think about that, what the heck does that mean? What does it mean, though? You're sick, right? Are you actually under the weather any more than we're always under the weather because the weather's all around us? Right, that's, that's an idiom, okay? It's a way of saying... One thing, you're not necessarily saying it, but you're saying it. Okay, so this was an idiom that, that God's people would have known instinctively. And here's what it refers to. That, that like went and followed language, the go and follow, it refers to loyalty to God and to his covenant or his commandments with a metaphor of a path or a way underlying it. Okay, to follow other gods was to abandon this way and this loyalty to abandon or forget God, and to follow the customs or the religious traditions of the pagan nations. Okay? Idols can lead you off track, off the way. How do you know if you're off track? 
This is probably the next important question. How do you know if you're following an idol? You actually don't have to guess because the scriptures give us like real clarity on it. If we can put up Romans 1, 21 to 23. So here's, here's how idols, here's how it plays out. This is Paul, the apostle Paul. He's writing to a church in Rome 2,000 years ago. Paul obviously knows his Bible really well. He's been meditating on these passages for a long time. And under the inspiration of God's spirit, he says, though, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. There's that word again. And their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Did you hear that in the passage that we read? An exchange of glory for the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Something created now becomes, takes the place of the creator. Now let's go over to verses 28 to 32. How do you know if you're off track? If we don't acknowledge God, this is some of the scariest words in the entire Bible, God delivers people over. Eventually, God gives people what they want. He gives you and me what we want. If we don't want him, you don't get him. He doesn't force himself on anyone. So God delivers them over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. Remember like senseless thinking and kind of like, like, it's almost like your understanding becomes darkened. The sun goes down and there's darkness. And then here's, here's this is why I think, um, this is where I think hopefully this gets practical. See if you see this in your life or have ever seen this in your life. This is all downstream. So if, if God is the source and downstream is his people receiving living water, fresh water, sweet water that refreshes, then idols downstream, you're going to see something downstream from idols. This is what you see from salt water, if you will, or just dying of thirst, spiritually speaking. Verse 29 They're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrusting, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they knew God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud those who practice them. Do you guys see the darkness? that happens. How do you know if, all, if you're off track? You look and sound like everyone else, like the world. That's the world. Broken relationships, darkness. There's no more distinctiveness in that, right? There, there isn't. There's no separateness. There's no holiness in it. If you're in a lineup, I want you to imagine that someone's been accused of, there's a crime that takes place and they round up a bunch of likely suspects, and then they put them in a lineup. Let's say the crime, let's say that Christianity were outlawed, or believing in God were outlawed. Basically, I think what Paul is saying is like, they couldn't pick you out of a crowd for believing God. You'd be like, uh, keep going. I can't, I don't see any distinctiveness here. There wouldn't be enough evidence to convict a person of belonging to God. I experienced this uh, recently. I, I had a moment just in the last few weeks where um, I had a little, little, little argument with my wife. Again, I probably should have run this past you first, but it's, a, it's about me. Uh, I had an argument with my wife, and what I noticed coming up out of this argument was everything that I... <laughs> What I noticed coming out of this argument was all the broken stuff that you, um, like a lack of love and mercy that I think God used to convict me of some things. I had no love or mercy for my wife. All I thought about was myself, how I felt, how I felt wronged, which I wasn't actually wronged. But my response was unloving and unmerciful in a way that left me kind of, it it frightened me. I didn't, I didn't lash out in violence or anything like that, but my, wor- 
You don't have to. You don't have to. Like, words are powerful. And, and murder doesn't even begin with the fists. It begins in the heart. Hatred doesn't begin with an act of violence. It begins with an evil thought. And what, what the Lord has been showing me, and this is why I think this word is so important, if for, for, for no one else, it's really important for me, is that downstream of idolatry is a lack of love and mercy, among many other things. Do you guys see the connection? A lack of knowledge of acknowledging God leads to alienation. If you don't acknowledge him, you'll find yourself far from him. And that's what idols do. Idols lead you off track. That's what they do. Have you found yourself off track? If you're here and you're a Christian, have you found yourself off track at any point in the last little while? Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I'm off track right now. As you're talking, I'm realizing like, this is, this is me. Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And I'm, by the way, I just want to say I'm so glad that you are here. If that's you, this is for you too. Idolatry is really bad, obviously, because it's like a broken cistern. It, it cannot satisfy your soul. It's not what you were created for. But I just want you to know, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you have a bit of an advantage because you're less guilty than those who associate with God but are actually alienated from him through choice. So you got that going for you. Also, I just want you to know that there's actually, there's something in Jeremiah that's for you. If you're not a disciple, and there's something in Jeremiah that is for you if you are. Jeremiah doesn't end in chapter 2, verse 13. It doesn't. It actually goes for, I think it's the longest book in the Bible, little Bible trivia, longest book of the, of the entire Bible, full of Jeremiads. So if you just, just want to feel real emo, what, what do they call it now? I don't know what they call it now. An e-boy e or e-girl if you want to have like a, is that a thing? Whatever. I don't care. This is busting and it's a gas. <clears throat> Jeremiah, the longest book of the entire Bible, okay? And the construction of it is so intricate and so delicate. Right in the middle of it is chapter 31. And I want to read you something. Because Jeremiah's warnings to the people of Israel, believe it or not, they don't produce repentance. They don't. I want you to imagine like this is aimed at you and there's all this conviction about leaving God and forgetting him and alienating ourselves from him and, and pursuing idols, pursuing other things and broken cisterns. And the response is crickets or just anger. Because sometimes it's easier to get angry with the truth than to receive it. So I want you to imagine that Jeremiah at great cost to himself, proclaims this message, and then nothing happens. And his warning is like, guys, do you know what this means? Your city is going to be destroyed. And then it happens. It happens. It's terrible. It's, it's a tragedy. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible story is in some ways can be likened to a, a marriage and like the wedding day before the wedding day ends, the bride cheats on her husband. Okay, it's, it's a tragedy. It is an absolute tragedy. However, the Bible story doesn't end with that. The Bible story is the story of God, the husband, pursuing his wife up and down, left and right to the ends of the earth. And here's what, the, here's what God says to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 says this. It says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. This isn't Jeremiah's opinion. This is what God is saying. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Why would he make a new covenant? What's wrong with the old one? Everything we just talked about. It can't change the heart. That first covenant that God made with his people 
on Mount Sinai after he rescued them, which, by the way, it was, it was downstream of his grace. The people of Israel weren't earning from God. Like, they were receiving his grace. And it was in light of that grace that they were called to be a certain kind of people in the world. It's downstream of grace. But that covenant, Israel repeatedly broke it. Like a marriage, again, I'm, I know I'm using a lot of marriage analogies. Here's the reason why. Jeremiah uses it. And so because the marriage covenant has been broken, God's got to make a new covenant. And he says in verse 32, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, I'm their Lord. Verse 33, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest of them, this is the Lord's declaration, I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Okay. What I talked about earlier was this idea that you can, you can be a priest. Jeremiah talks about the priest. You can be a priest. The priest is someone, like Tom was talking about earlier, who reorients their life around God, right? That's what a priest uh, does. But Jeremiah talks about how these priests only outwardly appeared to reorient their life around God, but actually they were totally committed to their own way. So that is a possibility. And that is when someone is outwardly associated with God, but inwardly alienated from him. So the labels don't matter much. However, what Jeremiah says here is that even though the people didn't know God before, this is a covenant where everyone will know God. Everybody that's in, in this new covenant, everyone will know him. There is a difference between knowing facts about someone and actually knowing them. I'm a big, when I was a kid, I loved baseball cards. I, I like the, the back of baseball cards. I like numbers and stats. I loved being able to tell you that Tim Salmon was six foot three and weighed 215 pounds. He lived in Scottsdale. He has a lovely second home in Newport. I love that. I would love telling you that. I love being able to say, oh, he hit 31 homers in 93. These are all accurate, by the way. Okay? 30 years later, it's still dialed in. I actually met Tim Salmon. I didn't know the guy at all. Very nice man. You don't know who he is. He played for the Angels right fielder. Uh, a lovely, lovely guy. I knew facts about him. I didn't know him. Interestingly, he didn't know me. <laughs> hey, Tim, who are you? It is possible to know stuff about people without knowing them. And the reality is that without a new heart, all we will know about God is stuff about him. We won't know him. It's not possible. Here's how I know this. Israel. Nobody had more access to God than they did. Nobody on earth. They were witnesses to his miracles, to his power. They received his words. They were the, the beneficiaries of these covenants, including the one in Sinai. That was all, it wasn't just for Israel but they were the first people to receive those. And what did it do for them? It just made them guiltier. That's all it did. It made them guiltier. So very clearly, something else was needed. And this is why this stuff is so instructive. Jeremiah is not just telling you the story of what happened with Israel. Jeremiah is instructing you and I, this is what happens when people abandon God. And the human heart is bent on abandoning God. A week or two ago, my intro to gospel community, which if you're new, an intro, a gospel community is a group of people. It's men and women coming together in intentional and meaningful ways to follow Jesus. Our intro to gospel community is kind of going through some foundational material as we get going. We're a few weeks in. And there was a word that stuck out in some of the stuff that we were reading. And the word was aversion. You guys remember that if you're a part of the intro? That word stuck 
out. And the context of what we're talking about was the human soul has an aversion towards God. That's hard to believe, right? The idea of God is such a wonderful idea. Who doesn't want? Who doesn't want there to be like a creator that's overseeing this whole thing? Apparently, nobody. <laughs> or apparently, everyone. I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> apparently, everyone doesn't want that. But the good news is, and we know that because of the broken cisterns that are littered across this world. We know that because we're thirsty and we just can't get a drink. We know that because we have an itch that we scratch and it never goes away. <laughs> for God. We were made for him, but we were alienated from him. And this word that Jeremiah proclaims in the middle of his book the middle of one of the darkest books of the entire Bible, is a word of hope. It's a word of hope. So here's my third point. A life of true worship produces hope. Jeremiah believed that Israel's future depended on a great act of mercy of God and his forgiveness. And that ultimately the mercy and the forgiveness was going to effectively initiate a transformation of the heart and the mind. Not just outward, but inward. That's what Jeremiah believed. And I'm going to read something to you. This is a quote. You guys don't have this in the back. Because if you're, if you're paying attention, if you're an astute Bible reader, the words that I read out of Jeremiah, they're all over the New Testament. And so here's a quote. It makes all the sense in the world that Jesus saw his own life and death as announcing the dawn of Jeremiah's new covenant. He would die for the sins of his own people and simultaneously bring about that great act of forgiveness that Jeremiah anticipated. This act of scandalous mercy would bring about that transformation of the human heart that is so desperately needed. All of this is contained in a nutshell in the pregnant words of Jesus at his final Passover meal. He took the bread broke it, gave thanks, and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. When you guys are gathered around the table for your Lord's suppers, this is why. This is why we read the words new covenant. It's because without Jesus pouring out his blood for us, without him shedding at all for us, we would have no hope. We would just be, here's the two options for humanity. Uh, one is just a pagan that worships idols. And then two is someone who's outwardly associated with God but inwardly worships idols. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm gonna cleanse you. Nobody in Israel could do it, but I'm gonna do it. And how did he do it? He did it by putting on flesh. Tom talked about putting on other people when he was sharing his story earlier about being in South Africa and about experiencing kind of like a little taste of what the South Africans have experienced with, uh, with terrible flooding, with people leaving the country in droves, with a financial storm that's hit that country, all those things. Everything that could go wrong in South Africa kind of has gone wrong, and God took took him through this experience of like, here's a taste of that. Jesus didn't just get a taste of our broken humanity. He absorbed all of it. Beautiful. The whole thing. He put on flesh and he stepped into every, everything. Uh, he dealt with rejection, which touches one of our biggest idols, which is acceptance. We are so afraid of rejection. Anybody? <laughs> We're terrified of it. We'll compromise in, in ridiculous ways to avoid being, feeling rejected. Jesus tasted rejection for you and me. Uh, control. We love to be in control. We hate the unknown. We want to maximize our certainty. Jesus lost control. Gave it up out of obedience to God's will. And on the cross, all of the chaos that we fear fell upon him descended on him. Uh, we love power. Jesus left his throne 
in heaven to become a servant. We love comfort. Jesus left the comfort of heaven to come into this mess. He got uncomfortable so that we could experience life in the comfortable presence of God, comforting presence of God because it's not comfortable, (laughs) and that we could have a future in God's eternal kingdom. My point in saying this is, here's the big idea for today. Idols let you down, but Jesus never will. Jesus himself described himself, there's, there's going to be streams of living water that I'm going to give you access to. He's the source. We're no, longer, uh, we're no longer looking anywhere else. We're looking to him. If you want to be refreshed, if you want to experience real life, you go to him. And you know what ends up happening to you as you begin to go to him? You find yourself refreshed. I mentioned earlier that I had this moment where I recognized my own lack of love and mercy towards my wife. I came up in conflict. One of the things that I did uh, at first, at first I, at first I blame shifted and put it back on her. That didn't work because that doesn't work. I don't know if you know this. Scapegoating other people fails. Um, I get why we do it. I get why I do it. It just doesn't work. But I wanted, I wanted to blame her. I wanted, I didn't want to be the problem. And then I realized I'm the problem. <laughs> because I wanted above all else, I wanted somebody to comfort me. I wanted somebody to listen to my cares and make it all better. I took my, instead of casting my cares on Jesus, I cast my cares on my wife. This was the re- big revelation I had this week as I was preparing this. And you know, what, you know what ended up happening? It was like sipping salt water. It didn't work. Not because there's anything wrong with her, but because I was never meant to, t- she's not a source of life, I love you. She's not. She's not a source of living water. No wife is, no husband is, no job is, no career is, no person, no power, none of it. But what I ended up doing is I recognized something because I had read those words out of Romans. Those words are intense, aren't they? I recognized, oh, that applies to me. That wasn't just for somebody else. That was for me. And so the good news that I came to this week, which, by the way, I had a moment. I told my wife, I told Heather, like, I'm pretty sure I'm a Christian, 85%. 70%. It's 50-50. I'm pushing. I think I'm a Christian. Because... A lack of love and mercy is downstream from idols. It's idolatry. It's not downstream from God. So I think it's fair for me to ask myself the question, am I really a Christian? Here's the hope that I discovered this week. Jeremiah talks about this. God loves his people so much. He loves his runaway bride so much that he says, come back to me and I'll cleanse you. Come back to me and I'll renew you. Come back to me and I'll make you new. I will connect you back to the source. And downstream from there is real water, living water. And so what ended up happening this week to me was that ugly moment with my wife has reconnected me to the source. And I'm, I'm confident that I'm forgiven. I'm confident that I'm loved. And I'm confident that Jesus is what my heart needs most. My wife is great. She is an object. She's she's such a gift to me. And I cannot serve her until Jesus served me with forgiveness and mercy. I could only use her to satisfy my own needs. That's all I could do. But Jesus, idols let you down. Jesus never will. Jesus cleanses, washes, restores. But there is a condition called repentance. Let's stand. I'm going to call the band up. I'm going to call the prayer team up too. If you're on the prayer team, please come on up.
I'm convinced of one thing. We're not all that unlike Rachel. We're not. If you're a Christian in the room and you don't know this yet, I I think God will provide clarity today. We all want to carry our idols into the promised land. We want to take them with us in so many ways. But the good news is that Jesus, just like God carried the Israelites through the sea, through the chaos, and brought them out to the promised land, God in Christ carried your brokenness and sin to the cross. He carried you all the way there, and he absorbed all of it so that you could walk free from idols. That's the promise. So I just want to ask you this question as we head into a time of praise and response. Is there anything you're trying to sneak into the promised land with you? Are there any idols you're trying to take with you? I'm confident that God can bring those things to mind and invite you to release them because repentance looks like releasing. I'm gonna pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that idols, even though they let us down, Jesus never does. I thank you that Jesus put on mercy. He knew that we could never free ourselves. And so he freed us by absorbing our brokenness into himself. And now he has become the source of life-giving water to everybody who comes and takes a drink. And so I pray this morning that we would take a drink. I pray that our thirst, that we'd see it as sipping salt water whenever we go to the broken cisterns and that we'd get so fed up with it that we'd be like, I need you, Jesus. You're living water. Your water cleanses. Your water refreshes. Your water sustains. Your water is sweet. Your water cools. Your water's good. And I pray that we would respond, God, in whatever way we need to this morning so that we could reattach to the source of life. We thank you, Father, and we love you. Continue me pray. Amen. I hand it off to Tom.